Uh, so we are in our series before we begin, and uh, we have been going through uh, Genesis 1 through 3, and it's revealed to us all kinds of foundations of, of life, about what life is really all about. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at the wonder of life. What does it mean to be in wonder of God? What does it mean that we are wonderfully made? So in Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17, before I get there, I just want to tell a little story that will seem a bit odd at the beginning, because I'm talking about the wonder of life this morning, and we're going to begin with death. But I was... Um, at a funeral a couple of years ago uh, for a, a friend of mine who was a, a rugby coach who I knew well, and uh, it was desperately sad. We all turn up, we had our rugby club blazers on and ties and all arrived together and it was just kind of this shock amongst uh, the club uh, and his family and his friends. And uh, it was a, a humanist funeral. I don't know if you've been to a humanist funeral before, but um, the liturgy and what was said disturbed me. This is um, something close to what I think was said. This is from my memory and then going on Google and kind of working out, was this what was said? I think it was this. The death of each of us is in the order of things. It follows life as surely as night follows day. We can take the tree of life as a symbol. The human race is the trunk and branches of this tree. And individual men and women are the leaves which appear one season, flourish for a summer, and then die. I too am like a leaf on this tree, and one day I shall be torn off by a storm, or I shall simply decay and fall and mingle with the earth at its roots. But while I live, I am conscious of the tree's flowing sap and steadfast strength. Deep down in my consciousness is the consciousness of a collective life, a life which I am a part of, as to which I make every minute I have a unique contribution. When I die and fall, the tree remains nourished to some small degree by my manifestation of life. Millions of leaves have preceded me and millions will follow me, but the tree itself grows and endures. In other words, live an ordinary life, and then decompose in the hope that you might make some small difference in a world that we assume is always progressing. I'm not sure it is. Even at funerals that I've been to where it's supposed to be a religious funeral, a Christian funeral, I've heard ministers explain death in the language of ashes to ashes and dust to dust but without finishing the story. Come on, Scotland. Come on, Glasgow. Come on, Glasgow Grace. Let's return to the Bible. Even before there was death in Genesis 2, we see hope in the face of death. Now, as we continue this series, I want us to see that life with the imminent threat of death is to be lived in wonder. God has made a way for us to live in wonder. 
the Bible story unfolds this wonderful truth that death is not the end. And actually, we find that we can be like trees planted near streams of living water. Trees that won't just decompose like a leaf into the ground, but trees that are everlasting. A place is made for us where we will live forever in the presence of God. So, Zara, where are you? Come read this morning for us from Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. Oh, you need this, and I'll turn this off. This is the test. Hello? Hey. (laughs) Okay, so Genesis 2, 4 to 17. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs, it runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Brilliant, thank you so much. Okay, well, we are wonderfully made. Now, so far, Moses has only used one word for God up to verse 3 in chapter 2, Elohim. And that word he uses 35 times, and he uses that word 35 times because he wants to make a point. And his point is that this is the God, the one true God, all-powerful God, creator God, God who has made all things, God who is infinite, God who is above all other gods, God who is the only true God. But up to this point, it's possible for you to think, hmm, so we have a God who sets things in motion, and he's done this wonderful creation, but Now he watches on high from a distance, the clockmaker God. And let's be honest, sometimes even when we know that that's not right, we can kind of live that way. Do you sometimes feel 
as if God is, is distant, that he's far away from you? Well, in 2.4, Moses helps us to blow that out of the water by changing the name for God from Elohim to Yahweh Elohim. That's because Moses is about to describe the garden scene, a place where God dwells with his people, a place where he is found to be in intimate relationship in a very special place. The name changes because the text is moving from cosmic, universal, everything to something much more local. And in particular, it's moving from people to Adam and Eve, named people, people he cherishes, cares for. And it moves from forests to two very special trees. Chapter 1 up to 2-3 is uh, about the creation of the cosmos. But now, here we are looking at how God cares particularly about us, about particular people. So Moses begins to use the name that the Hebrews would have known as his covenant name, his promise name, his name that shows he is with them, that he is for them. And that name, as the psalmist says, would have helped Hebrews to have heard those words and gone, ah, yeah, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, cherished by God. Now, in verse 6, God creates Adam. And at first, let's be honest, this story can seem a little bit bizarre. And there's all kinds of symbolism in here that is vital to us to understand the rest of Scripture, the the mega-narrative, this big story of the Bible. And so it's important that we we pay attention to it, because we could switch off here. We could go, ah, well, I don't really get this. It seems like, it seems a bit bizarre, all this talk of trees and plants, and then it goes on about snakes in chapter 3, and what's going on here? But actually, there's something very significant about each of these things that we come across that we might think are a bit bizarre. The first thing is that Adam is created out of the earth, the dust. God takes this lifeless substance, dust. He doesn't take the gold later on in the passage. Maybe we we might have thought, he'll make us out of gold. Because I'm so wonderful. He'll make me out of gold. No, no, he makes you out of dust. Now, this is not some sort of compost from the queen's cows, okay? This this is dust, lifeless dust. Nothing's going to grow out of this thing. And with this useless-looking substance, God blows the most significant and glorious of all substances, his own life-giving breath. God is a giver. God, by nature is full of grace and love. He cannot help but take the lowly and lift it high. He cannot help but take what is written off and and turn it into dazzling displays of his goodness. When it comes to humanity, life is given by God. We can take no credit. We were dust, lifeless, blowing in the wind. Then God molds us from it. 
cherishing us, intimately breathing life into us. Without the breath of God, there is no human. You have been intimately made. It's like a kiss, isn't it? Think about the kiss of life when someone needs CPR. This is like a kiss from the creator to his pinnacle of creation. Job says this, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. You can't get much more personal than breath. Each one of us lives because God has chosen to breathe on us. Uh, we were out with family recently, and uh, it was kind of the whole clan. So my sister and her kids were there, and my mum and dad, granny and grandpa now, were there. Um, we're at this museum, and it was time to go. Now, if you've ever been out on a day trip with kids, you will know that when it's time to go, that, that's a kind of loose term, okay? It just it takes a while. Um, we're at, at the entrance, and um, we've been waiting around for a while. Kids coming and going, grandparents in gift shops. And we're, we all get there, miracle upon miracle. We all get there. We're all just about to leave. And one child says, I need a toilet. Oh. And then suddenly everyone needs a toilet. Oh, nightmare. So everyone goes to the toilet. Well, lots of people go to the toilet. And then some stay. And what happens is one of the kids comes to follow after the guys who are going to the toilet. Those who stayed thought, oh yeah, she's with them. Those who had gone to the toilet thought, oh yeah, she's with them. And she kind of gets caught in between somewhere, and we don't know where she was for 10 minutes. Now, we got back from the toilet, and like that I'm talking about toilets a lot. I got back from the toilet, and we got back from the toilet, and I just see the panic in her dad's face, my brother-in-law's face. He is suddenly, he suddenly just kicks into action. Where is Erin? Where is she? Right, you go that way, you go that way, I'll go this way, let's cover all our bases, let's ask that person over there. Just kicks into gear, goes for it, because his precious daughter is missing. It reminds me of a story Jesus tells about the 99 leaving the 99 to go and find the one. About a shepherd and his sheep. And actually, all the way back here in Genesis 2, we see something of this glorious, cherishing love of the Father, of God, as he breathes out into us this love for his people. My brother-in-law's not Christian, there's something there that he demonstrated of the love of God. Now, God maybe wouldn't have panicked. <laughs> he wouldn't have panicked. But there's something about, there was something about his love for his daughter that, that just struck a chord with me. That, that's how God loves me. God created humanity out of the ground, almost as if the earth itself was the, the womb of humanity. Now, that doesn't mean, careful here, you saying that the world is like Mother Earth. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that the Earth is a person or is divine in any way, but this is the beginning 
of some very important symbolism in the Bible about us originating from the material of the ground. And we should take notice of it. Job said this, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return there. Now, that's how, uh, that's, that's how one translation understands it. NIV, NIV uh, translates it, depart instead of return there. And I get why they do that, because that makes sense. I, I leave this world when I die, I depart. But actually, the literal understanding of that passage and I think this is how the Hebrews would have understood it, it comes out of Genesis. I came out of my mother's womb, and I will return to the soil of Mother Earth, into the womb of the earth. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Born twice? Nicodemus is confused. What? Why? How could someone possibly be born twice? And a part of Jesus' answer is this, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus dies and is buried in a tomb. He goes down into the earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Only this time, the Spirit of God breathes life into humanity out of the earth again. The resurrection of Jesus is the opening of a barren womb that has been barren since the days of Adam. Jesus is the firstborn of a new creation. He comes out of the earth as a new and better Adam. Humanity reborn from the dead through Jesus. And now we can boldly say, as Paul did, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We can be confident in Isaiah's words, this great prophet, he said, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Jesus came to return us, people he cherishes, to the life that God has intended for us, to be cherished by our Maker who has wonderfully made us. But what do we return to? What do we return to? We return to a place of wonder. We return to being what we've been made to be, worshippers. The same word for forming humans from the dust, verse 7, is the same word used for the trees growing out of the ground, verse 9. The Bible loves to talk about trees. Did you know that? There are lots of trees in the Bible. There are all sorts of different types of trees. There are roots, 
There are branches, there are leaves, there are stumps, there are fruit. There's lots of talk about fruit, blessed trees and cursed trees. And it begins here in Genesis 2 with very significant trees. The tree of life, the tree symbolized the gift of eternal life to humanity. Adam and Eve were supposed to look at the tree of life and see there an example of the gift that's been given to them, this seed-bearing eternal tree, the tree of life. They were supposed to look at it and think, I want to flourish like this great tree. I want to be fruitful like this wonderful tree. Then there is the tree of good and evil. And God commands, do not eat from this tree. If you do, death will come. And what happens, Genesis 3? We see that Adam and Eve decide we're not going to listen to that command. Tricked by Satan into thinking that, it said, that God had said something slightly different. And so, okay, we can eat from that tree. They disobey him. So where's the hope here? Where's the, the hope that we might return someday to this garden? When God gives his people instructions to put together the tabernacle, which is this great big tent of meeting that the Hebrews meet in, and uh, he puts right in the midst of his people at the center to remind them that it's God first, that it's worship first, that it's to the glory of God. Everything rotates and lives and breathes around this place of worship. And then in the temple, we see the same thing. And God commands them. Something very interesting is commanded of them as they build the tabernacle and then the temple. They, he commands them to put a lampstand at the entrance of the Holy of Holies. Okay, so what, Ian, what, what's this lampstand got to do with these trees you're talking about? You're getting, you're getting me confused here. Well, in Exodus 25, part of this big book of Moses, remember this is the Pentateuch, it's, it's one book, these first five books that we have split up at the beginning of the Bible. Well, in Exodus 25, it says that this lampstand with seven branches was to look like a tree with the cups at the end of each branch designed like almond blossoms and flowers. They even called it the tree of life. And then the temple was filled with wood carvings of all different types of plants and trees. At the center of Israel's place of worship is this constant reminder that life is God-given. And it's a reminder of Eden, that one day God will make a way for everyone to dwell together again in an Eden-like temple, a place of worship, a place where we're designed to live, a place where we're designed to live to the glory of God. Later in 3.8, God described this uh, wonderful relationship that God had with his people as walking back and forth in the garden. He, he walked with them in the garden. And then this is how Leviticus and Deuteronomy describe God's presence in the tabernacle and in the temple. Again, he's, he's point, 
pointing forward and pointing back all the time. Eden, temple, temple, Eden. Worship is way more than singing on a Sunday, isn't it? Now, that's wonderful. I love singing on a Sunday. I love that we get to do that, that we come together and we declare truth together and we worship the King together. I love it. But worship is way more than that. Our whole design is for worship. Our actions, our our thoughts, our bodies, our emotions, they're all designed to worship God all the time. Eden was the first temple and humanity was made to worship there. And the trees here in Genesis 2 show us not only that this is the first temple, but that humans are like trees throughout the biblical story. Some will be like the tree of life, and they will be fruitful, and they will be people who spread good seed and give good fruit. And some will be toxic. Some will be like the tree of good, of, no, of the knowledge of good and evil. They will be like a temptation to people. They will be the type of people who lead you astray, lead you away from God to ashes instead of blessing. And like Adam and Eve, there is a choice about how we live our lives. Do we look to the tree of eternal life given by God, or do we want to live like Adam and Eve decided they wanted to live? Live for ourselves, gain more for ourselves, be like God, be our own gods. Think of Psalm 1. People are like trees planted by streams of living water, or people are like chaff blown away in the wind. This psalm, Psalm 1, is the introduction to all the psalms to help us to see that there is the way of worship and there is the way of wickedness, of cursing, blessing, cursing, uh, cursed, blessing, cursed, blessed, cursed. Which, which way do we want to go? The whole point of the psalm is to say, Walk in wonder at the God who wonderfully made you and gives you life. Do not choose the way of the ashes blown away in the wind. Or don't be like a leaf that falls off a tree and decomposes and hope that in some way you have made your impact on this world. Jesus then comes as the stump of Jesse from David's line. King has come, and he comes as our Savior, and he comes to bring us an Eden-like opportunity to worship. The perfect God-man, the one who lived as the perfect and good man, unlike any of us, the better Adam, he comes bearing perfect fruit, and it's abundant. And this Jesus, he's come to bring us back to Eden. Notice that language, Psalm 1, 
by streams of living water. Something else significant in this text, in verse 10, a river. A river that multiplies into four, and I'm glad that Zara did the reading and not me, because they're quite hard rivers to pronounce, well done. In Ezekiel and Revelation, we are given a vision of the kingdom of heaven, of the new creation to come, when Jesus makes all things new again. A river. A life-giving river is in the middle of this new creation. Remember someone next to streams of living water? A river in Eden flowed out of Eden, and then it multiplied four ways. It was a river of life that brought more life and more life and more life. And so, our ears are supposed to prick up when Jesus stands up at the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles, that's interesting, isn't it? What an interesting place for him to stand up and say what he's about to say. And he says this, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Whoa. So not only does Jesus come to bring this garden of Eden-like temple presence of God, but He says that He will give this Spirit to us, and out of us will flow rivers of living water. John explains it, thankfully, in the following verses. He says, by this He meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. After Jesus is raised from the dead, he tells the disciples to wait. Luke 24, stay continually at the temple, praising God. At the temple? Why at the temple? Doesn't, that doesn't matter anymore, does it? Well, until Pentecost it did. On the day of Pentecost, another festival, the Spirit comes and all the imagery of the Spirit in the Old Testament is present. The presence of God. The Spirit is poured out like water. The Spirit appears like fire. And we're going to talk about that later on in the series. And the Spirit of God blows like a wind or breath. God breathes new life on his people, and the church is born. Eden-like life is given by the resurrected Jesus, who rose out of the womb of the earth to cause us to be born again, and the Spirit to blow on his people. Elohim, Yahweh, has come close through Jesus. The Lord our God adores us, and has drawn us in. The Spirit causes us to cry out now, Abba, Father. It's a personal, close, intimate, cherishing relationship. 
through the burial of Jesus into the earth's womb and the rising of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit out of that barren womb, we now have new life to offer. By dying the death we deserved on the cursed tree, Jesus, the Word in creation, makes us like the tree of life in Eden when the Spirit of God raises him up as a new Adam out of the earth, that barren womb, into a new and everlasting life. The womb is no longer barren. Put your trust in Jesus for new life. Eden was the first temple, the first place of worship where humanity lived in close relationship with God. Now, if we want the same, all we need to do is accept that glorious invite from Jesus. So if you're sat there today and you're thinking, well, this is all very good. Maybe this is this kind of some kind of Christian belief. No, no, this is for everyone. This is for you. You want new life? You want eternal life? You want to, want to be planted by streams of living water? You want to receive the presence of God this morning? You can. And now we ourselves are like little Edens. Do you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? that you have received from God. If you're a Christian, that is true of you. But of course, we are waiting for this new creation where Jesus will make us complete. It won't be finally complete until Jesus returns and unites heaven and earth and we get to enjoy him perfectly in this everlasting temple. And so until then, we are called, like Adam, as priests to guard and serve as priests of our own living temples, priests of our minds and bodies. And so I, I just want to lay some stuff out here, okay, in terms of how we actually apply this, and we're going to get quite practical, and we're, we're going to pray for one another, and some things might happen that you've not seen before. I would just encourage you, keep your heart open. Don't be cynical. Cynicism is not a fruit of the Spirit. Let's see what God does. The first thing is that we need to guard what is coming in and out. Obey the Word of God. That's what Adam and Eve failed to do. God said one thing, they did another. So we need to know his word and obey his word. We need to be willing to learn and trust in God's word above our own opinions and our own cultural pressures, but get into the word itself and work out what does it actually say and be willing to lay our own lives down and say, yes, Lord, I'm with you. I'm a follower of Jesus. I take up my own cross. I'm willing to do this no matter what. Read it, pray over it, meditate on it. You will find life. Then, we also need to be willing to 
consistently and regularly get into his presence. It can be helpful just to split that word up, uh, beloved. We need to learn to be his beloved. We need to learn to be loved. Carve out time, whatever the cost, to just sit with him, be with him, enjoy him. Let him enjoy you. Stand in awe of him, wait on him, let him speak over you and enjoy his love. Spurgeon was asked this, great preacher um, of the 19th century, he said this, what is more important, praying or reading the Bible? Oh, sorry, this is what he was asked. What is more important, praying or reading the Bible? He said, I ask what is more important, breathing in or breathing out? Word and spirit prayer and the Bible. Let's continually be doing both. And the other thing that I'm probably, you're probably getting where I'm going here, another thing we need to do is continually seek more of the Spirit of God. It is not possible to become a believer without receiving the Spirit, but it is possible to receive a seal of the Spirit without experiencing a pour, an outpouring of the Spirit, without receiving uh, this filling of the Spirit that brings us into a deeper intimacy and more gifts. Now, for some people, that comes immediately when they come to faith. And for others, it comes later. And you can see that if you read through Acts, you'll see several times, including in the life of Paul, where it seems like he's given his life to Jesus on the road to Damascus, but it isn't until later that he's prayed for that he receives the Spirit. And so that might be the, the same for you this morning. We're thinking, well, I've put my faith in Jesus, and I can only do that by the Spirit regenerating my heart, making me new again, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is in you. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit in that regard. But there is this special outpouring of the Spirit that you maybe never have received. And then we're commanded to keep being filled with the Spirit. So it's not just a one-time thing. It's not, you know, here's the super-Christians and here's the non-super-Christians. That's not how it works. So we need to be continually filled with the Spirit. Guys, I need to be filled with the Spirit every day. I need to ask for more of His Spirit every day. Ephesians 5.18 says, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So whether you know that you just need a little bit more of God's presence in your life, you're feeling dry, or whether you think, maybe I've never really had that first kind of experience of the Spirit of God being poured out on me. Well, we'd love to pray for you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get on our feet, okay? And we are going to spend some time, as the band comes back up, we'll spend some time just waiting on God. We're just going to ask the power of the Holy Spirit to come. And we don't need to hype this up. This is real. 
I've seen it time and time again, where the Holy Spirit just comes and starts moving in people's lives. And if that starts happening to you, you might start to feel some burning. You might start to um, cry. You might have a real conviction of sin. There might be something that happens to you where you're just like, oh, there is this real sense that I need forgiveness for this certain thing. Or that I need to go and ask forgiveness for, some, uh, for something that I've done to someone else in this room. If that happens, let's go and do it. Let's get on our knees and ask for forgiveness. Let's allow the love of God to be poured over us in great power. I'm just going to read a passage to you from Acts 8. I think it's a helpful model. Because God seems to love to do things through his people corporately. He loves to do it when we're gathered together in unity. And so the prayer team, in just a moment, are going to be over next to the banner on that side. And I'm going to encourage you, if you sense that God is doing something in you or that you just really have this burning desire for more of the power and the presence of God, that you would go and, and receive prayer. They'll lay hands on you. But let me read this passage that will hopefully help us to see why we do that. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. For me, I was at a Bible camp in America when I was 18 years old. They did not believe in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's called cessationism. They believed that um, these gifts of the Spirit that we enjoy as a church are not for today, supernatural gifts. Um, but anyway, we were taking communion and we were to go out and find a space in the field. And I sat down. And I remember having um, this little cup in my hand and this little piece of bread and thanking Jesus for what he's done. And something just started to happen. There was a, a kind of burning that was taking place in my chest. And I just sensed the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon me. I couldn't explain it. I had no theology for it at the time. I didn't know what was going on. It's only now looking back. I know that that was when the Holy Spirit was poured out on me, even though I'd become a believer a number of years before. And so I'm going to pray for you if that's you. If you're in that situation, you've never received the Spirit in that way, I'm going to pray for you now. Okay? So if that, if that is you, I just encourage you to open your arms up and, and just welcome the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you died for us. You're willing to come and rescue us. We thank you, Jesus, that not only did you die for us, but you were resurrected from the tomb to give us new life, cause us to be born again. And that then you ascended on high and you poured out your Holy Spirit on your church. 
And Lord, we pray now, would you fall on us afresh? Come, Holy Spirit. We wait on you, Holy Spirit.